Every year, NM Cool convenes for an annual summit to highlight the previous year's successful collaborative efforts and to look forward to future opportunities in the land of enchantment. We're taking a different approach to virtual events this year, and instead of our usual day-long summit, we're hosting this mini-podcast series focused on collaborative efforts. This will be followed by a short summit meeting on April 21st via Zoom. Our goal for the summit this year is to not only encourage you all to engage with the content of the interviews, but to give you the opportunity to do so from somewhere other than in front of your screen. I'm Leah Potterwaite, Education and Outreach Project Manager at the Kavira Coalition, and this is the NM Cool Podcast Series. I'm one of the co-hosts for this series. Welcome, everyone, to another NM Cool Summit podcast episode. My name is Leah Potter-Waite. I'll be the co-host for today's episode, and I'm really happy to be joined here today with Lily Irvin Vitella, and I'm going to let Lily introduce herself. Hi, Leah. Um, Nice to uh, be here. Thanks for having me. My name is Lily Irvin Vitella, and I am the president and executive director of New Mexico First. Thank you. We'd love to just jump right in and have you describe the strategic plan that you helped with, the Resilience in New Mexico Agriculture Strategic Plan, as well as other conservation or ag-focused initiatives through New Mexico First. That would be great. Absolutely. So uh, true confessions, the Resilience in New Mexico Agricultural Strategic Plan was before my time. And so I've been with New Mexico First coming up on a couple of years. And the work actually goes back about seven years, más o menos. And so what happened was New Mexico first partnered with New Mexico State. And we also worked with the Thornburg Foundation and the McCune Foundation and W.K. Kellogg. And what we did is we reached out across the state to pull in a whole range of stakeholders. So farmers and ranchers at different scales of production, folks who irrigate in different ways, folks who grow different kinds of crops, um, folks who raise different kinds of livestock. We also had conversations with folks who were thinking about the way we use natural resources from a resource management perspective, as well as with folks who are environmentalists. And we ended up having six regional conversations that brought in these broad group of stakeholders to really think together about how we could strengthen agriculture in New Mexico in a way that's a win-win for folks. And so we also had a tribal roundtable, and some of those stakeholder meetings were held in Spanish, some were held in English. So there was a real intention around making sure that multiple perspectives were represented. And there was awareness and acknowledgement that how people interact with, experience, and make decisions about land and water and agriculture, that there's a great diversity in our big state. And that diversity comes 
not just because of kind of the scale of production of the kind of business folks are in, but it also comes because while we have some shared beliefs around valuing and respecting land and water, how we do that statewide. And so there was, you know, a deep understanding that the idea wasn't folks would come together and agree on everything, but that by having open and principled conversations, people could understand where there was common ground and where there was not. But those things that moved forward in the what we call the Ag Plan or the Resilience in New Mexico Agricultural Strategic Plan would be based on where there was consensus. And that from that, we would engage in ongoing collective action to move implementation forward, to maintain agriculture, not only as a thriving industry that's really important to our economic well-being, but as something that's foundational to our culture and our understanding of who and what we are in New Mexico. I'd love to hear you describe the processes that you help people go into? Like, how do you support consensus decision-making? How do you help people come to the table? How do you, you know, provide the information that folks need? I, I know that you have a lot of experience from what I was reading about you, you know, in conflict resolution and bringing people to the table. And I just love to hear, like, how do you bring people across, you know, different lines to the table? The way that we bring folks together to think about and plan for and then make ongoing decisions about agricultural resilience is is multifold. So first it's by great intention and always through relationship. And so, you know, at New Mexico First, whether somebody has been part of the ag resilience work forever and since before New Mexico First was working in this space, or whether folks became interested just recently and, and just showed up at a meeting, no matter who or how somebody connects to the work, we have a consistent value across our staff that your perspective is equally welcomed and valued. And we're not giving anybody a pop quiz as a barrier to entry, that we know that if people care enough to show up and be in a space, then they have something meaningful to contribute. And that no one perspective is the perspective. What keeps our um, train on the rails is really referencing back where there's consensus. So sometimes people come forward and they have really amazing, fantastic ideas that they're moving forward in the policy space, for example. And if it's not something that we have developed an authentic consensus around, then it's a place where we step back. So at New Mexico First, we don't have radical consensus where it has to be 100%. But the way recommendations and strategies move forward is having at least 85% of the participants who are, again, representing broad and inclusive interests saying we're for this. And then whether it's something that is small, kind of thoughtful and incremental change, or it's something that's more transformative, as long as that consensus is there, that's what really pushes us forward. And so, and, and we make an effort to continually bring people in, provide some kind of connecting to and understanding where they're coming from and also connecting and understanding where folks who've been working together collectively are coming from. And there are folks who are like, hey, I'm back and I haven't I haven't been to one of these meetings in three years. And we're like, come on in. We're glad to see you. One of the things that has shifted since I've been in New Mexico first and worked with other members of our team on ag resilience is really, really trying to deepen and broaden the space for conversations about values to explicitly make that a part of our conversation. So that way folks who 
can understand more why they see the world differently and where there's common ground. And if we try to sidetrack from values and just get down to the nitty gritty and quote unquote business, often business gets disrupted by conflict when people don't really understand where one another is coming from. But if you create space for those values dialogues and you also create space for deeper learning and move beyond just kind of updates and networking to a deeper dive on content issues and you invite a variety of perspectives, then really, really interesting work happens sometimes in the policy space, but sometimes just in the networking, like let's get some things done. Oh, great. I just learned something from you about seed saving. Cool. I'm going to take that back to my own practices or to my own neighbors or within my own network. And that's um, that's the beauty of working in a collective impact way. Like there is an eye on the prize in terms of policy and systems change, but it's always centered in relationships and values. And regardless of people's kind of particular um, sector perspective or political perspective, there's room for common ground when we connect around our humanity. And it's interesting how the work has kind of spread out and touched other areas of our work. At New Mexico First, we work on a variety of policy areas. We work on health and education and natural resources and economic and community development and good governance. Those are our five policy domains. The really interesting thing about agricultural resilience is it's at the heart of so many of those things, right? So when we talk about agricultural resilience, we must talk about economic and community development. We must understand the health implications. We must understand that there's education and workforce development that goes with that. And we also have to understand the economic and community development aspects of, of agriculture because it's not only a business practice, right? It's not only a natural resource issues. It's kind of at the heart of who and how we are in community together. I love this. I think it's such a beautiful, complex, but sounds like really fruitful process that you're helping people enter into together. Part of why it's hard to see that humanity sometimes is if if we come into spaces that we're not used to coming into together and we zoom in too soon on quote unquote the issues without understanding people's values and their knowledge and their beliefs and their practices, it's really easy to get crosswise with each other. And sometimes because we don't have enough places where people build consensus and build relationship, and that's rarer than it ought to be, and folks tend to do that with those with whom they're most comfortable, the practice of doing that with folks who look at the world in really different ways can feel laborsome or, or trying. You know, there has to be that combination of purposeful relationship building. We're not just coming to hang out. And yet, if there's not an element of that connecting as people, there's an ability to misinterpret. And so, you know, one of the things that I was struck by when I started at New Mexico first and was trying to understand kind of what has the policy environment been like? What kind of projects have folks worked on together? I was struck by the scope of the legislative requests, both in terms of kind of what we were looking for enabling policy around or what we were looking for allocations around. And most of those requests were pretty modest. And one of the, my, my working theory is that the greater the trust, the more transformative the change. And so you have to just do that deeper work to understand one another's work, even if, you know, I am never going to do meat inspection, but I want to understand it because if I do, then I can better understand how to help people build relationships with each other and problem solve. 
I've had my goats and my chickens, but I, I don't grow food for a living. But the people who do need to be in conversation with each other. And I need to learn enough, know enough, and have other folks on my team learn enough, know enough. So that way, again, we're asking the right kind of questions that invite the right kind of problem solving. And, you know, it's about showing up again and again and again. And so, you know, every month we have ag resilience meetings. If folks are really interested in land and water, they can meet about that. If folks are really interested in the next generation of farmers and looking at workforce and education issues, they can meet up on that. If folks are really interested in economic viability and looking for strategies to strengthen that and to learn from one another, you know, they meet around that. If people are interested in value chain or supply chain issues and local food systems, that's where some of our work around food and health have been interwoven into the ag resilience work and kind of are mutually reinforcing. And it's in that broader coalition work sometimes that healing around mistrust and trust building happens. You know, it reminds me of this quote from Adrienne Marie Brown, and it's move at the speed of trust from her book, Emergent Strategy. And I think it is so key. And it you know, when we're sort of forced to slow down and really relationship build. How would folks, if they wanted to join one of those ag resilience meetings, how would they go about doing that? How could they find that information? We have tried to make it even easier. So if you were to head to our website and look under our initiatives section, ag resilience is there and you can see the notes from the last like seven or eight months of meetings. If you want to go even further back, ask, we'll send them to you. There's no big secrets. And so people can see what the meeting pattern is and how to join. But if you're like, hey, I don't have time for that. Cool, cool. If you just sent us an email at info at nmfirst.org and said, hey, will you send me information about the ag resilience work? We would be more than happy to do that. And if folks want to have a conversation, we're also more than happy to connect them to folks on the team who can help them figure out where's best for me. Wonderful. Thank you. We're going to go into this question about why. Why is collaboration for working lands and land stewardship in New Mexico important? My personal belief is that one of the most powerfully good things about New Mexico is just our place and that deep connection to, to place. I think it's, it's a, whether we understand that connection in the same way, people are powerfully moved, whether they're just visiting or whether we're settlers or whether families have been here since the beginning of time. Natural resources and land and space are core to our ability to survive and thrive together or to struggle mightily and be in conflict with one another. Doing work in this space gives us ample opportunity to just be better humans. <laughs> but beyond that philosophical piece, in a really practical way, when we work collectively rather than in silos, we avoid working at cross purposes from potential allies and actual allies. There's a lot of well-intentioned stuff that happens. And if it happens in an uncoordinated way, it's not super effective. And maybe that's particularly true and, and feels very alive right now coming out of the session. You know, we worked really hard to coordinate 
and understand and bring folks to the table. Whether we were having checking in with our friends from the New Mexico Acequia Association, or we were checking in with our friends from the New Mexico Food and Agricultural Policy Council. We spent a lot of time trying to check in and share out and be really transparent about here are some things that we could work on. What do we have a consensus around? Great, we'll keep people in the loop. We'll lift up other people's messages if they ask us to because it's something we have a consensus around. Not only in a remote session, but in every session, time is limited. And when there are multiple competing ideas on one topic that could have been coordinated and maybe could have been a win-win-win across the board, but we miss that opportunity because we've not bothered to connect or we've been too busy. I think it makes it very difficult for our volunteer legislators to really think about how to approach agriculture and conservation issues in a way that is coherent and impactful in a good way. If we love New Mexico and we love our place and the land we live on and the water that we all need to survive, then we have to act in that loving way, which means having open, honest, transparent conversations, not always agreeing on everything, but understanding how our work is connected and impacts. And when we do that thoughtfully and principledly, it leads to better public policy. And when we have better public policy, we have healthier land and water and we have healthier people. Where is the biggest opportunity to shift agriculture and land stewardship through these types of collaborations? One of the things that we worked on in the most recent session was a bill that was put together by representatives Stansbury and Ferrari that came out of a broader coalition than our Agrizilience group, but it was a group of folks who were working on food, hunger, agriculture, and water. This group had been meeting since the summer of 2019. We did a, a small omnibus piece of legislation in the 2020 regular session. And then just as we were coming back around to debrief and talk lessons learned and see what we're, we were going to try to do together next, COVID hit. And we started getting a number of calls from folks who were trying to figure out how to get food and water where it needed to go. We realized that the power of relationship was even more profound than we understood, especially in a time of crisis. What had been a group of about 80 people with probably 30 super frequent flyers, but 80 folks who were really connected became a network and a coalition of over 400 people who themselves, many of whom represent organizations or other coalitions. The group included you know, farmers and ranchers, again, different scales of production, different parts of the state. It included folks who work tirelessly on hunger relief efforts. It included folks who work on anti-poverty efforts. It included people of faith and researchers and activists and just individuals in between. And you know, it's a, it's a very diverse group of folks. And one of the things that we were very clear on is that the work that we do at the grassroots and community-based level is super important and powerful. And if we could do a better job of lifting that wisdom and those relationships up into state government and encourage state government and tribal government and the and industry and 
NGOs to work together around food hunger and farming issues, that our plans could be more coherent, they could be more impactful, and our understanding of how we use state resources in terms of knowledge as well as budget needs could be so profound. We moved forward with the Food Hunger Farm Bill that would establish this really inclusive and intersectional council to make decisions together and to think about budget together and to think about other resource needs and and opportunities together. And so that infrastructure of deliberation and planning is super powerful. And while the legislation itself ended up not moving forward in terms of being passed, by seeding that idea, we, we definitely have the buy-in of the cabinet secretaries and a commitment to participate in this planning process. And then representatives Stansbury and Ferrari and Ortez agreed to use part of their junior bill money to help the Human Services Department and and MDA and have the experts on their team in building relationships and connection and planning come together. And so it was a beautiful example of community really showing up in a powerful way. There was not a single person in community who spoke against House Bill 207. And there's just a lot of interest in being a part of the solution. And so I think that's where it's at. You know, within the within House Bill 207, there were several places where we lifted up good public policy work that's already happening. So from soil health issues to a commitment around acequias to meat processing and inspection to the Double Up Food Bucks program and New Mexico grown programs that the New Mexico Farmers Marketing Association and the New Mexico Food and Agricultural Policy Council have worked on to workforce issues, to financing issues across the board. We were lifting up those policy pieces that are already in place and trying to create a framework to hold all of those good ideas together so that way it's not a happy accident or really, really laborious, but that there's a system to hold that really good and powerful collaboration and innovation that's going on. So I honestly believe that by having that infrastructure and that process, all of the important conservation and agriculture work that happens in New Mexico could happen in a much more supported and integrated and impactful way. What does the word community mean to you? And how does it inform how you go about creating mutually beneficial partnerships and spaces? When you ask a restorative justice practitioner who's trained as a community and regional planner what community is, but I will tell you is in my own view, it's about family. It's about relations. It's about neighborliness. I think that one of the things that has proven true throughout our history in New Mexico, and even before we were called New Mexico, is a deep understanding of our connectedness to one another and place. So community, at its best, is about honoring those connections and about, not in a romanticized way, but honoring it and then working through those relationships to create the kind of communities, the kind of space, the kind of connection that we want that allows all of our families to thrive. I love that. I'm curious in regards to your restorative justice background, how does that influence how you move through the world and do this work in regards to collaboration? For me, anybody can run a meeting and that's good. We should all be in whatever ways we can creating spaces to connect. 
But being a restorative justice practitioner to me means that we bring people together with great intention and with great respect for their wisdom, for their knowledge, for their values and their beliefs. And so we're never going for consensus light. We're never having simple, polite conversations. We're creating really robust relationships so we can have fierce conversations that help us get to the heart of matters and then come out of the heart of matters with creative, durable healing solutions. I think one of the legacies of colonization in New Mexico is that we often look for answers outside. And one of the most healing things we can do is understand that those of us who live and love and grow our families here, we have what it takes to heal the things that harm us, but not on our own. That has to happen together. That's beautiful. I really appreciate that you brought in colonization into the conversation. Being in a country, a nation that is so deeply colonized and with so many racial justice issues, I'm wondering how racial justice gets infused into your work and how do you bring in voices that maybe get marginalized? How do you bring them in in a stronger way? I think it's really interesting that in many land-based cultures, Having conversations about value in our relationship with the land isn't foreign. In fact, that way of thinking about the work is itself inviting and legitimizing in a way that running an agenda differently wouldn't work. You know, like, so there, there's, so we avoid some of that disconnect by really understanding the social norms, the broad social norms and values and cultures that already exist within New Mexico. And instead of treating that as a problem to be addressed, we see that as an asset and a strength to be worked with. And so I think part of why we have such a large, diverse stakeholder group that participates in the work around food, hunger, and agriculture and water is because of this profound respect for culture and for each person's individual representation of that. So we never put people in the position to speak on behalf of everyone in their community or ask people to represent in ways that dishonor them. When people get to show up just as who they are with their experiences and they know that they're welcome to invite others in and they have the experience of being honored and respected, then they invite others in and, and the work grows and the network grows. And then when people problem solve on nitty gritty things like, hey, how do we get food or water to this community? Or how do we access those resources that some people seem to be accessing and others don't? And when people share information in that way and it has an impact, then doing broader policy work is relatively easy. It's like, okay, like we, um, there's a trust that comes with nitty gritty being there for each other in authentic ways that allows us to do the kind of more imaginative work of thinking about public policy and how that transforms our communities, our state and our own just everyday life. I feel like hearing you talk about it, I get this sense that the relationship building and the really deep profound respect that you're speaking to really pushes back in many ways against the uh, legacies of colonization, you know, of more top-down uh, structures or extractive ways of relating. So I just really appreciate that work and, and how you're framing it. I appreciate you saying that. And I think it's true. People's value and leadership gets to show up in lots of ways because it's not one person and one idea and trying to convince or compel other folks around it. It's 
telling stories and learning about one another and our work and creating that space. So that way we can see within that, like, where's the opportunity? And everybody gets to show up. We're, we're a leaderful coalition. People are showing up and they're bringing their gifts and their knowledge and their relationships. Gosh, that's just a powerfully good thing, no matter what the issue is. But it's particularly important when there have been policies and systems that have push people to break relationship with one another or to break relationship with the land or to break relationship with the water. When we are living in the results of those fragmented relationships, it's even more important to lean into relationship. I think about a statistic that Secretary Witte shares and many of us quote about what percentage of the food we eat in New Mexico is imported, and it's over 90%, and what percentage of the things we grow that we could eat are exported, and it's also over 90%. When people scratch their head and say, how could that be? Going back to an earlier piece in our conversation, that's colony math, right? You import those things that you need and you export those things of great value without necessarily always having fair compensation on that. The solutions aren't in one piece of policy. There's no magic answer. There's no secret sauce. But when we stay in relationship, working on things over the long haul, and we're leader filled, so that way it's not about a particular person, but it's about who and what we do together. That's, that's when you have what it takes to affect change over the long haul. And lots of folks are doing it. I'm humbled and amazed and inspired every day by the people who care about and do work in these spaces and some of the, you know, usual suspects and some folks who it would blow your mind how passionately they care about food systems and food justice and farmer and rancher justice and land social justice issues as well. It's, it's pretty amazing. Wow. Yeah. I, I wish folks could see you right now because I feel like you're glowing with passion around this subject. So it's so cool to hear. Is there anything else you'd like to share that you feel is important for folks to hear? I guess it's maybe more of an invitation than any kind of profound answer. But one of the things that I've learned because I've had the privilege of working with people who are coming at agricultural and natural resource issues and food and health and other resource issues, but we all seem to kind of be ending up in in some of these shared spaces, is to be careful about our old narratives about who and how things get done. And so I'll, I'll give you a for instance. One of the issues that came up as we were working on House Bill 207 was how to push for and prioritize New Mexico grown. And that makes Buying local makes a lot of good sense. What's interesting is, but it doesn't always make sense in every single situation. And for those of us who are like so New Mexico proud and love, want to support our local producers, that can give pause. An interesting challenge has been percolating historically. It's around the push for food banks in New Mexico to buy local. And I will say that many of them do when there's the opportunity to do that. But the mission, you know, of food banks is to get the greatest volume, value, and variety they can to people who do not have 
sufficient nutritional resources who are hungry, you know, and it may not be the hunger that we see in a place that's struck by famine, but there are people who are stressed out and skipping meals to make sure that other family members can eat. And that's happening at a really significant rate. When we say that we have the hungriest kids in the nation, I don't know. I think sometimes people can be numbed out to that. And so when this kind of conflicts arrives, like, well, why aren't food banks who purchase all these food purchasing more local? That can create these tensions. But when folks understand each other's missions more deeply and understand just how significant the hunger issues are in New Mexico and how wide the gap is between what our food bank systems are doing and what the need is, folks can shift and not take such a hardline approach and become more nuanced. When we stop pitting worker justice issues and fair wages for farmers and ranchers and producers against food justice issues for people who are hungry, then we're on to something. And so I guess that's the last you know thing that I would share in terms of other information. Question those tensions, question those conflicts, go deeper. And if you don't know all the answers, Build relationships and ask somebody because most folks really want to be understood. And if you listen to understand rather than debate or convince, wow, then we're on to something. Then we can really problem solve. And that concludes this episode of the NM Cool podcast. Again, this is one of a handful of podcasts the NM Cool Network will be releasing over the next few weeks leading up to the annual summit. The summit is scheduled for April 21st at 10 a.m. Mountain Time via Zoom. For more information and to register for this year's summit, go to nmcool.org slash annual summit. That's n-m-c-e-w-l dot org slash annual summit. Thanks for tuning in.